0: Good morning, Calvary Church, and uh, good morning to those of you watching remotely as well. Uh, today we're starting a new series, as been mentioned, in, uh, in First Thessalonians. I'm really looking forward to going to this. First Thessalonians is one of my favorite books of the Bible uh, because it really teaches us about how to live the gospel life. And we're going to be learning together about how the gospel impacts our personal lives, how it impacts the way we do ministry as people, and as a church and, and our own community and how it impacts our life together. So there are handouts, maybe you got them on the way in, but there's, I wrote you, I wrote you an introduction to the book so that uh, you'll know a little bit more about the background. So if you didn't get one, you can pick one up on the way out. And I really encourage you to, to read that and read through the book of Thessalonians a few times uh, to get yourself well acquainted uh, with it. And so now the handout introduces both First and Second Thessalonians, but we're only going to study First Thessalonians uh, together in this particular series. It'll take us about seven uh, seven weeks to get through it, but uh, let me open in prayer and uh, and let's look at God's word together this morning. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word that you have spoken uh, through your prophets and your apostles, that you have seen fit to put into scripture to bless and benefit and stir the souls of your church ever since. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as you have written the Scripture, that you would also apply it to our lives this morning, that you would teach us, that you would reprove us, that you would instruct us and train us in what is right and make us even more competent and equipped as your people, as your church, to do the Father's will and to do this all for the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray, amen. So, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Thessalonians, if you're not already there, chapter 1. Um, but we'll read that in a minute together. But first of all, it's really important to understand the, where the church came from and we the original experience of the Apostle Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and, and the whole team that was involved in this church planting expedition in Thessalonica. And also learn a little bit about the Thessalonians themselves, and we're introduced back in the book of Acts to the characters of Jason and Aristarchus and Secundus. So, while you keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, turn in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 17. And it's really important to, to realize, you know, how the church got started in Thessalonica. In fact, it was only a couple of months, maybe three, maybe four at the most, from when the church was started, and what we're going to read about in a second, and how it happened, to when, actually, the apostle and his team wrote 1 Thessalonians back to that church. Very, very short time frame. So, let's read about what took place back in Acts 17. It says, now, when they had traveled through, and this is Paul and his church planting teams, and when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities and shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king. Jesus, and they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. This is a fascinating story and a very powerful work of God in forming this church in just a matter of a couple months in the city of Thessalonica. So I really encourage you to read the introduction that I wrote for you, and I would really encourage you to read through the book of 1 Thessalonians a few times. It's very short. It's not going to take you very long. So, you can read through it multiple times. It really will help you understand what's going on here. So, now we're in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, as it's well known. And uh, just a little bit of understanding here will help us. So, that missionary journey took place and lasted about two and a half years. And uh, it lasted from AD 50 to about 52. And he and his team visited many of the churches that they'd planted on the first missionary journey about one to two years earlier in Asia. And after this, now, they're crossing the Aegean Sea, and they are now going to embark on a fresh mission um, in the country of Greece, as we know it. So the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they preached the gospel in the city of Thessalonica in the Greek province of Macedonia, probably in late 50 AD. And after the initial work, as we read, in the, amongst the Jewish community, then they probably stayed there for up to three months or so working on the Gentile aspect of the mission. But soon, Paul and Silas, as we read, you know, they had to flee because of what was going on, and they had to flee down to Berea because of the opposition, and in fact, the opposition even chased them. And so, they had to leave Berea, and then they went down further south to Athens and uh, ended up leaving Sim- T- Silas and Timothy behind temporarily. And then Silas and Timothy would eventually join Paul in Athens, and then Paul would send them back north again. Timothy, he would send to Thessalonica, and Titus and Silas he would send probably back to Philippi. And then Paul would even move further down into Corinth, and his team would rejoin him there eventually, so there's a lot of moving around in these, in these couple months. And they would settle for a while in Corinth for about a year and a half and establish the church at Corinth. Now, most likely then, the letters to the Thessalonians were written from Corinth. Soon after, Timothy got back from, from Thessalonica and brought good news about the fact that the church survived. And so this church in Thessalonica is only a few months old. It's a brand new church. And they're being greatly tested, uh, developing their doctrinal understanding. I mean, these people coming out of a pagan background. And so they're very young in their faith and understanding the teachings about Jesus and, and, and acquiring then through the power of the Spirit new godly moral standards for living. They're totally opposed to the culture that they're from. And living out these convictions in the midst of persecution. And so today as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to rejoice with God and glorify Him for the powerful work of His gospel. Because what happened in Thessalonica has been happening around the world ever since. And then we're going to thank Him for the opportunity and the privilege we have to be a part of the worldwide expansion of the gospel. And so, chapter 1, you're going to be able to sense two things very quickly, that the gospel is powerfully succeeding Um, here in this new mission field. In verses 1 to 4, we see that the gospel establishes a healthy church, a spiritually healthy, vibrant church. And then in verses 5 to 10, we will understand and sense that the gospel has created not, not only a healthy church, but a very influential church as well. And so, let me read to you this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come let's take a a look now then at how the gospel establishes this this healthy church in thessalonica so rapidly so quickly the standard salutation is in verse one and paul sylvanus and timothy to the church of the thessalonians and god the father and the lord jesus christ grace and peace to you so this is an opening style typical of the culture at the time and the letters that are written. Uh, you hear about the author and the recipients and a similar greeting. It's like how we might open a letter, Dear so and so. But what's unusual in this letter, if you study the Apostle Paul's letters, is that he doesn't mention his apostleship at the beginning. And that's because to the Thessalonians, this is not an issue with them. It's not a question about his apostleship. What's in question, though, amongst the Thessalonian believers in the community? was their manner of ministry among them, how they behaved themselves. In fact, this comes out if you just glance over to chapter two, verse five. His main defense is here. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And this is the issue that's going on in in the church of Thessalonica at the moment. And we'll talk more about this next Sunday when we get into chapter two. And so Paul is the main author, certainly, to this book, but it's true that all three composed this letter. Paul uses the collective we throughout both the letters, although occasionally he'll he'll write in the first person. But a little background on Sylvanus here. Um, It's the same person as Silas, by the way. It's just Luke preferred to use Silas. Paul uses Sylvanus. They're just different forms of the same name, but it's the same guy. So Silas was a, a Jewish man, but he was also a Roman citizen. And if you uh, remember a little bit from reading from the book of Acts, he was one that was sent from the Jerusalem council along with Paul uh, to Antioch to deliver the decision of that council. And Silas was known as a leader and a prophet in the early Jerusalem church. And my favorite description of him comes in Acts chapter 15 because it says this about him. He says, he was one who risked his life for the name of Jesus Christ. That's quite a description. It's pretty cool. That's in Scripture, but to be described as one who risked his life for the name of Jesus Christ. This is Silas, and he was chosen by Paul as, one, as his main partner on the second missionary journey. Uh, he was a reliable man, and he ministered and suffered along with Paul in Philippi and Thessalonica, and then he likely stayed on at Corinth And then eventually he would become associated more so with the apostle Peter in Rome, who is mentioned then by Peter as helping him compose what we have as the book of 1 Peter. So that's, that's who this man is, Silas. And then a little bit of background on Timothy, who you're probably a little bit more familiar with. He was a convert most likely from Paul's first missionary journey in Lystra, and he had a very good reputation, and so Paul picked him up, took him on a second journey. This is what the apostle Paul would typically do and he would go to churches and preach the gospel, and, and the church gets established, and he'd say, well, who wants to go with me on a mission trip? And then they would go with him, and they would just join his team. And so Timothy was very uh, trusted by Paul, and he went on his third journey. Eventually, Timothy would end up pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he co-authored with the Apostle Paul the books of Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and Philemon. And of course, he was the recipient of two personal letters from the Apostle Paul, First and 2 Timothy is well known as the apostle's protege. So now we know who's writing this letter, who was on the team. These are just some of the big names on the team. The team was made up of more people than that. And then we get to the establishment where he talks about the church. And and literally in Greek, it just means called out ones. That's who the church is, but it was a, a common term at the time, it just means an assembly of some type, some organization. But in this case, this is a special assembly to talk about the church as we know it today because we're attached to God and we find our life in Him and in Jesus Christ. And notice the design of the writing here that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So equal in deity, right? We see the Trinity even mentioned at the beginning here with God the Father and and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Now the church of Thessalonica is described in the most interesting way here. You may not think so at first, but it says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, normally, of course, I'm not going to stand up here and make a big case about prepositions, okay? But in this particular case, this little phrase, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is pregnant with a lot of meaning. So, this could mean a, a few different things. It could mean that the church belonging to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because the church does belong to, him, to them. And it could mean that when it says the church in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, is it's founded by, it's founded by God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, that's even more accurate than saying it was founded by Paul and his team. It could mean also that the word knowing God as Father, the church who knows God as Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this particular case, in this book, in this setting, I believe that the best understanding of the translation is living in, living in. It's the church that lives in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because the church is in vital connection with the, with the Godhead, with union, spiritual union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it draws its life from God. The church draws its life from God the Father, finds its strength and identity in Him and in Jesus Christ. And this is probably one of the most important lessons, actually, this morning to take home is just this little reality, It's really the same lesson that the Lord Jesus himself taught in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's how the church bears fruit. For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. This is the truth and the reality of a healthy church is that it finds its life in God. And then we get to this the thanksgiving that's given in verses 2 to 4, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that He has chosen you. So, it's typical at this point in letters of the time, you know, we get the little intro- introduction of, you know, who the author is, who the recipients are, and some greetings. And then usually, if you 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 study the the writings at this time, now you get a bunch of prayers to a bunch of deities uh, for health and some other things, and maybe some notes of thanks to these various particular false gods and idols. But for Paul, of course, the correspondence is an opportunity to give profuse thanks to the eternally blessed God, not to fake ones, and that'll come up later, actually, at the end of our, of our section today. And then prayers are going to be offered here that we read about for much more profound matters in the life of the church than that, even though health is important. And Paul and the team are just thankfully, give, are constantly giving thanks for the Thessalonian believers, and it's especially the case because Timothy just got back and he gave a report. So, if you look into chapter 3, verse 6, he says here, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And so that's what occasioned the letter because their church, you know, in this church planning expedition, they're only there a short period of time. You get driven out, is the church going to survive? How, how are they going to do in the faith? And then Timothy comes with the report and St. Paul sends off this letter to the church. And he's talking about how they, as a team, are constantly giving thanks and giving God glory because He chose them for salvation, and He made them a church. And they're constantly giving thanks and persistently doing so. I mean, they remember the people by face and by name. I mean, they were just there a couple months ago. And, and, and they know the people well, and they were driven out because they were preaching the gospel. And they're giving thanks to God constantly because He's produced in them faith, love, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's also known as the Christian virtue triad, these three. It's a brief definition of Christianity, John Calvin said. And it gets elaborated on throughout the New Testament, faith, love, and hope. They're marks of true grace, of regeneration, that one's been born again, and a reorientation of life. And that's true of our lives as well. These are marks of grace upon our life, and those we share the gospel with, and how you know that they have come to true faith is because these things are developed in them by the Holy Spirit. And so works of faith are referring to the authenticity of their faith, that it's a true faith. It's a faith toward God. it's a faith that's at work, and it's a general reference here to doing good works and helping others and, and being a part of the mission that so quickly. This church has developed this faith, and they're actively putting it to work. Their labor of love that he's thanking for God for refers to this extraordinary love that they expend toward one another. It's going beyond what's expected and uh, self-sacrifice. I mean, have you ever noticed that uh, loving one another in the church is not easy all the time? You know, it's, it's a labor sometimes to love people. And, and so, this love has to come from God. It's not just a mere sentiment. And then the perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ refers to their courageous confidence in the midst of their situation. Perseverance through the trials, the disappointments, the opposition that's already going on. I mean, poor, poor, this poor guy named Jason, right? I mean, he puts his faith in Christ and immediately gets dragged out. And their zeal. I mean, the Christian life is hard. Praise the Lord. It's supposed to be that way. And so hope here is the climax of the three Uh, three, faith, love, and hope, looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have seen, the Apostle Paul and his team, have seen in just a matter of a few weeks and, and, and supported by the report that Timothy has come and given them, that these things are happening in the church and that the church is continuing to grow. It's amazing, even though they're living in the midst, as we'll find out in a second, of a really intense persecution in their city for believing in Jesus. And so then in verse four, it comes down, for, he, for we know, he says, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. So, the cause for their thanksgiving is the fact that the Apostle Paul and his team now know that they were chosen by God, that they, they are part of His elect. And they know this, why? Because of those three graces that are operative in their lives, because of the evidence of it, of faith, of love, and of hope. And there are going to be two more reasons that are given to us, one in verse 5 and one in verses 6 to 10, on why he knows that God has chosen them for salvation. So, I want to talk a little bit about the doctrine of election this morning. He taught them, obviously, about this early on in their walk with God. You know, perhaps North American evangelicals need to add this into our discipleship programs earlier on because it's such an important doctrine. Oh yeah, it's, it's a glorious mystery that we're never going to be able to plumb the depths of, but it causes us to adore our God all the more, and to rejoice all the more in our salvation. So many many of the doctrinal statements that have been written over the years in the church talk about this, but but here's one for you that maybe you don't read often: the Thirty Nine Articles of the Church of England, and they were they it says this: the godly consideration of our election in christ is full of sweet pleasant and unspeakable comfort to godly persons that's the purpose of the doctrine to bring us pleasant unspeakable comfort in fact sticking with that church tradition john stott some of you may or may not know the name but a great leader of the evangelical portion of the anglican church he said there are four purposes Practical uses of the doctrine of election. First, it brings about assurance of salvation, not presumption of it. Assurance of salvation, not presumption. Second practical use of studying the doctrine of election is that it produces, it fosters holiness in our lives, not moral apathy. It brings about humility in us, not pride. And it teaches us to witness to the gospel of Christ rather than to be selfish, lazy people. You see, the doctrine of election, according to the Apostle Paul, and we'll study more of it someday, but it makes evangelism, you see, indispensable, not unnecessary as a lot of modern people like to think because they don't have the opportunity, apparently, to think deeply enough. But we, we read even over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll read this. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brother and beloved, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it works together. Because by preaching the gospel, by telling people about Jesus Christ, you're going out and you're finding out who they are. This is how God brings salvation to people. He brings it through the proclamation of His Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see right away that the gospel here in the Thessalonica establishes a very healthy church, purposefully, graciously, quickly, and and their health is measured by faith, love, and hope. How should we measure our health as a church, spiritual health as a church at Calvary? We hear the metrics for you, faith that works, love that labors, and hope that perseveres. This is how we measure our spiritual health as a church, if we want to know how healthy we are. And the Thessalonians have become a grace-transformed people. They're living in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where they draw their strength from. They abide in Christ, like Jesus taught, to abide in Him, and they would bear much fruit And so they are living out their callings in life and their new calling with the gospel as as a body of believers. So when we read the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, just the very beginning, and we know the background of what's going on here, we rejoice before God and we glorify Him because of the power of His gospel. And it's okay to just simply read the first four verses of 1 Thessalonians, knowing all that background, and just sit amazed. This is what God has done. And then we get to thank Him for the privilege of being a part of its advancement. So, not only has the gospel established a healthy church in verses 1 through 4, but now we see that the gospel creates an influential church right away in verses 5 to 10. And so, in verse 5, this is how the gospel is preached. In verses 6 to 10, this is how it's received. So, we read about how the gospel was preached in verse 5 and then how it was received in verses 6 and 10. For we know, backing up a second, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the second reason that Paul knows that they are of God's elect, the first one is because there's faith, love, and hope that our graces God developed in them, but because of the way the gospel came to them. And he's talking about the way they proclaimed it to them. It came in word, certainly, right? Because the gospel is a verbal message. It's always a verbal message. You can't preach the gospel without using words. That's what it is. It's a message about Jesus Christ. But he's saying here, but it didn't just come in word as though it were just some information, or even if it was a very good piece of information. And we already saw how in Acts 17, the proclamation included things like reasoning, proving, persuading. You see, true and and solid faith rests upon an intellectual component of the gospel. That's extremely important for us to understand because it's in harmony with what's being presented in this passage. It's not that they're against one another, that somehow word and this power are against one another, they work together. And so, now, it's also noted that it's called our gospel here. You might be wondering about that because that doesn't appear often in the text. It's not usually referenced as our gospel. It's called God's gospel or Christ's gospel. But they mean different things and they emphasize different things. It's not, it's not that they're saying we made this up. It's our gospel we invented or it's just another message of good news and you probably hear a lot of people wandering around as, as uh, itinerant philosophers giving you some good news. no. It's sometimes called God's gospel, and when we read that it's God's gospel somewhere in the text of the Bible, it's it's talking about that He's the author of it, and He's the revealer of it. The gospel came from Him, and sometimes it's called Christ's gospel in the Bible, and that's when it's emphasizing that Jesus is the subject of it. That's what the gospel's about. It's not about anything else. It's about Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is about, and that's what we preach. And so when it's called "our gospel," the meaning is that it's the gospel we preach. It's the gospel that came from God, and it's the gospel that it's about Christ. And here we see that it was preached not merely with words, but it came in power in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Now it's not clear to us as we read through here, these could be overlapping ideas. And in a sense, they sort of clarify each other as they go along, in power, in the Holy Spirit, in full conviction. And to some degree to another, they're really talking about the same thing. They're synonymous in a way. Another way of looking at it is that they each somehow convey a distinct meaning. Uh, It's not absolutely clear which way this should be read in this particular case. But regardless, this whole statement basically means that the missionaries could sense that when they were preaching in Thessalonica, that God was at work in them as they were speaking in a wonderfully powerful way in a unique way, in an unusual way. You see, the apostle and his team, they've been been preaching all over. Probably in dozens, probably hundreds of cities and villages at this point. And they've done it a lot. And what they're saying is that in your case, the Thessalonians, we had an unusual experience. That God was with us, an unusual measure of power with you. And so, in power here is most likely referring to the fact that They just knew that God was present, and His unction or His power was upon them in an unusual way amongst them. It might refer to signs and wonders and miracles that were a part of Paul's ministry, but at least with this particular reference in 1 Thessalonians, most scholars don't think that's what's going on in this case, that it's really talking about the manner in which they were preaching. And so, in the Holy Spirit, then, most likely refers to the Holy Spirit of course, being behind it all, that they knew that the power was there, that they spoke about this divine reality and were preaching and teaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they could sense that God was working in the hearts of their hearers in an unusual way. And so, in or with full conviction most likely refers to their own confidence as speakers, to their courage, that they were able to speak with courage before them in an unusual way. It could refer to the Thessalonians being under conviction but most likely in this case it's talking about the missionaries being emboldened driven by God himself to be doing what they're doing that they're under compulsion with a sense of confidence in the city of Thessalonica in that particular time in an unusual way because God was going to form a church there have you ever sensed a time when you just knew that God was using you with the gospel in somebody's life that he just, you heard words come out of your mouth and maybe an eloquence that's not normally in you and it comes out to people and it makes the gospel clear. That's sort of what he's talking about here. Perhaps that was on a mission campaign that you were on or maybe it was just talking with your neighbor who was in a crisis. And God just gave you the words and the power and you felt him at work and you could sense and you could see the evidence that he was at work. Or maybe with a friend in an unusual conversation that you had to have. I mean, there are times when we especially note the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in our ministry, and and our conviction rises as we speak to people, as we feel God working in us and through us and upon people with His Word to bring them the truth of the gospel. And sometimes God does this in different fullness of measure upon us. You know, then it's interesting as you go along, that Paul adds a word about his manner of life in here. All of a sudden, then, well, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And it's a preview of what's coming in the book, actually. But, you know, it's part of their message, in a way. It's not just the words. It's also your life, who you are as a person, and being open to being examined. It's a most important aspect today, of course, as messengers, and we would do well to consider... The people we listen to, and the people we love to listen to, the people we would follow, um, certain preachers and certain messengers. And we have to pay attention to our own character too, and our own spirituality, and our own manner of life, because you see, our life adds credibility to what we speak, the gospel. It adds more force and more persuasion to the words as we speak them to people. Well, there's more on this in the next message, because chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it's all about that one topic. It's all about the manner in which we live our lives and how that adds to the power of the gospel in people's people's view. So this is again now another reason Paul knew that they were chosen. Well, he knew that God had worked there among them and he decided to plant a church in Thessalonica because God caused them to respond to the gospel in faith. They believed in Jesus who died and rose again for their sins. And then he produced, God produced within them these initial graces of faith, hope, and love, that's one reason, but also because Paul and his team knew that God just was doing something amazing in Thessalonica when we were there, that we hadn't experienced in some other places where we've been. And now the third reason that they know is that they are loved and chosen by God is the way in which they received Him. And so we read in verses 6 to 10, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Holy Spirit's work working both sides like he's always doing. So the Holy Spirit's working on the side of the speakers of the gospel, and he's working on the side of the hearers, the preachers and the people who are responding. And the effect upon these, of the word upon these people is evidenced by this rapid and bold transformation of the people. They became imitators of Paul and the team, and the Lord Jesus. That means they followed them. That means they copied their lifestyle and their beliefs it means that they accepted the message and everything that it entailed about their new life in Christ and about what it would mean to suffer for this Jesus. And, and that's perhaps one of the most amazing things. That their imitation was after having received the word, then in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, accepting the message of the gospel in the midst of a context of persecution where if you accept it, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, that, that's hard enough to explain in human terms. But then on top of that, that such joy comes with it. It's not just because we accept the gospel because it's true and I'm going to suffer for it. But then they're filled with joy, with smiles on their faces and in their hearts. Unless, of course, you understand how the Holy Spirit works. You see, the severe persecution we already read about it in Acts 17, and it was just beginning, was also accompanied by this inex- inexplainable joy That's only understandable because the Holy Spirit was at work in these people. In fact, it was so great, their joy, that six years later when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he would boast about the Thessalonians in this matter. You see, joy is the chief immediate outcome of saving faith. So, look for it when you're sharing the gospel with people. Joy should overcome the people That you're speaking to if they believe in Jesus. You know, I had the opportunity to have a similar type of an experience. I led a team a number of years ago to a particular place in East Asia. And we've been to a lot of places preaching the gospel, of course, but there was this one particular city that we were in for a week, sharing the gospel with people, trying to plant churches, and everyone gave on the team gave the same reports every single morning when we had our little meetings before we went out, and that was people's faces changed, people's eyes changed, that their joy was in them in places we had never seen before. And everybody gave the same testimony. It was only on that trip. It wasn't that God wasn't at work in the other trips. He was at work in different ways, planting His churches. But that was a special trip. That was a unique trip, It was a blessing to be a part of what God was doing in that particular case, because we knew He was powerfully at work, because if you just explain the gospel to somebody and they believe, their whole countenance would change, and joy would come out of their mouths and out of their hearts. It was amazing. That's what He's talking about here. And Luke records this, really, this, this joy coming from the Holy Spirit as a normative experience in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So, if you read through that book, you'll see phrases like this many times. For example, in Acts 13, 52, it says, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. He said that. And then we go down into verse 7, and the acceptance of the word and the imitation of the Lord and His missionaries was to such a degree that we find out that this church becomes an example, really the example, the example, the prime example to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. So just so you know, basically that just means all of Greece. So this one church becomes the example for the churches all throughout the region. This means the churches we know from Scripture, the church in Philippi, they're an example to them. They're an example to the church in Berea. They're an example to the church in Corinth. And maybe in Athens and other places by now when this letter was written. And then in verses 8 to 10 we get the details of their modeling that's then further evidence, really, that God has chosen them. It's the fourth reason, if you will. And so, we reread in verses here for you, in verses 8 to 10, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, this is really the focal point of the passage. It's this long section at the end. It's their modeling as a church that Paul and his team want to point out to us, that God wants to point out to us at Calvary. You see, they're vigorous in proclaiming the word of the Lord. And notice that they did this even without really a lot of training. I mean, the church is only a couple months old at the most, and there they are going around sharing the gospel with people. It's amazing. They're proclaiming this message about Jesus Christ, who He is, the Son of God, and the redemption that He brings to us. And the Word of the Lord spreads rapidly and produces new believers, new churches, and new places. Another little note about the book of Acts, you know, as as Luke is writing this, he's giving progress reports along the way. In fact, that's how the book of Acts is organized. And so, there are five progress reports that Luke gives in the book of Acts. And so, after a bunch of stuff happens with the gospel, then he pauses and he tells you, gives you an update. So, in Acts 19.20, he would be talking about what happened in Thessalonica. And in Acts 19, 20, he says, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's his report. And that includes this church, not just what happened there, but what happened through that church in other places. It's it's spoken here, sounded forth, is is probably one of the best translations in verse 8. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. And this image is chosen because of what it conveys. It's like a loud trumpet ringing out, or like thunder that continually reverberates from Thessalonica. It never ceases, you see, his idea. And so, it continues to reverberate out of Thessalonica to the very ends of the earth. I mean, what an image. I mean, do you want that for Calvary? That kind of reality? The word Lord sounds forth to the ends of the earth? That kind of a reputation? I mean, the apostle does. Our Lord does. That's the whole point of the Thessalonican church being our example They've been so persistent to transmit the message, this is the amazing thing, that they've already gotten everywhere in just a couple months. I mean, how in the world did they do that? The apostle Paul is saying here that he's actually no longer needed, that basically he could retire as an apostle. That's what he's saying because the gospel's already covered Greece through the Thessalonian believers. Instead of Paul and the team being able to continue to travel, and then they would tell their stories about how, where they preached the gospel and what happened. What he's saying is that they would get to a city, and before they could tell people about what God did in Thessalonica, the people they're talking to would tell them about what they did in Thessalonica, because the story had already gotten there. They would hear about their own work. They would hear, hey, have you heard about those Christians in Thessalonica? There's this crazy missionary named Paul and his team and what they did, and look at at this church being transformed. I mean, what a reputation. Wouldn't you like that as well for us at Calvary? You travel around North Jersey and people say, hey, did you hear about what happened at Calvary? Did you hear about what the gospel did to them? Let me tell you some stories because the reputation is there. The Thessalonians had decisively turned away from idols, dead idols, to serve the true and the living God. Notice how worthless other religions are portrayed here. They're worthless because they're false, because they're counterfeits, because they're traps for people's souls. This is really important to understand in our pluralistic context that we live in these days. I mean, do you believe that? You know, I travel a lot to different, I have traveled a lot to different places in in Asia. I mean, all these made up religions by human beings, they're also they're amazing how they all rest upon humanity and its works, and they're all sponsored by demons. And that's very powerful, and that's why it's so difficult to deal in some of these places in the world. But that's what they are. They're false religions, these idols. And they had to turn completely. They can't just add Jesus to the shelf of their idols. They have to turn from their sin. They have to turn to God They have to turn from Satan to God. They have to turn away from idols to to holiness, to true light, turn away from the darkness. One of my favorite experiences in East Asia is what I refer to as the witch doctor church. It was about 10 plus years now. still going as far as I know. But it's the witch doctor church. And that's what we named it. We just called it the witch doctor church. It's a cool name for a church. You don't find many of them called that. So, but what happened is, is that, you know, we were out, you know, doing our thing in a van uh, with partners, uh, national partners, uh, proclaiming the gospel in different places, starting churches. And uh, my partner at the time, she gets a call on her cell phone, and she's invited to stop at a particular village and uh, asked if it'd be okay if we had time. At the end of the day, we're all exhausted from proclaiming the gospel all day and doing different things. So, sure, we have time for one more stop. And the reason we had to stop is because 12 uh, witch doctors had gotten together that day, and they were discussing whether or not, you know, Jesus Christ might also be a very powerful spirit that could be used uh, in the performance of their activities. And so they called up my friend and because they wanted somebody to come over and explain more clearly who exactly Jesus Christ is. And so we thought, well, that sounds cool. Let's go talk to him. And so we drove over to this house with 12 witch doctors in it who wanted to know more about Jesus and about his power. And so, of course, you know, we go in and we go say hi to everybody like you normally do in another culture. And then we leave, and I told, you know, my team, uh, they need to talk. <clears throat> um, and so the Americans were going were to go to the van and pray. for. And it ended up being like a couple hours um, that we had to pray for them. And so, but basically what happened <clears throat> is that my friend, of course, told them, about the power of Jesus Christ, who He really is, where power comes from, how idols are worthless, how the spirits they're trying to control uh, actually end up destroying their lives, and, that, and told them the true gospel, and that no, you can't just add Jesus to your list of powerful spirits that you try to control to bless people's lives or curse people's lives. You bow your knee to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so what happened is, that was the end of it. And so we went home, went back to our hotel in our case. And then we find out <clears throat> about a week later after we're all dispersed from the mission trip together and we get an email or I, think I got a phone call. and said, Daniel, you'll never believe what happened to the witch doctors, the witch doctor church that so we call it now. He says, they all decided to believe in Jesus and that all their other stuff was worthless. And so I guess next week, They're burning everything, all their little books and all their little magical amulets and stuff. They're going to have a big bonfire and burn them in the middle of the village and proclaim the gospel to the whole village. And uh, I said, that's thrilling and exciting. And so, that's why we call it the Witch Doctor Church because they're all former witch doctors. Now, they name the name of Jesus Christ. And the reports just kept coming in about how God has been transforming that village through these 12 women who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They rejected the idols of their culture, and they embraced Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians did that. We see this kind of stuff happening all the time in our world because the gospel does these things. And you notice that the Thessalonians here then also combine their devotion with waiting for Jesus. And notice the extensive description of Jesus. He's coming from heaven because that's where He is right now. And he has been raised from the dead, and he's currently reigning on high, and he's going to return to deliver his people. Jesus is going to save them from the wrath to come. And God's wrath is coming upon the unbelieving and the ungodly of this world. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection for you to have your sins forgiven so that you can be saved from the wrath to come, so you can be safe from the wrath to come. And Jesus at that time will grant to them, the Thessalonians, he'll grant to us as well when he returns the fullness of our salvation. And we'll get the whole pledge of the hope that we have of a new creation. And then also don't miss this. There's another lesson. It comes a little bit later in the book of Thessalonians as well. But they're a model not only of all this activity of going out and preaching the gospel, but they're also a model of being patient and waiting and waiting for Jesus. You know, it's a tension that's often pretty hard to sustain, is activity for Jesus, but yet waiting for him to come, to, to live responsibly in our world and, and and to live passionately and joyfully for the gospel, but yet really longing and looking for that day when Jesus returns. Because we all want salvation right now. So they were very active and they became a model of how the gospel creates an influential church. Do you want Calvary to become even more influential? then we need to become more like the Thessalonians. And their influence is seen in their eagerness, their joyfulness to spread this gospel themselves. And we look back on, on this first chapter, this first introduction that Paul writes to them, it's just full of thanksgiving and glorifying God for what he's done. God did all this. God did all of it. And thanking him yet again, and then we have the privilege to be a part of this and to continue the global advancement of the gospel. That's the privilege we have as a church. You know, Dr. John Stott, again, as he reflects upon First Thessalonians, he brings out a point of the Apostle Paul's church planning philosophy and really what we see in his letters continually, and that is that the gospel creates the church, which spreads the gospel, which creates more churches, which in turn spread the gospel ad infinitum. This is God's plan for ongoing evangelism, through local churches. And That's what we teach. That's what we train for throughout Asia and the United States as well as we want churches, planting churches that plant churches. That's even the history of the Evangelical Free Church. We're a church planting movement. That's who we are historically. And there are many ways and many methods we can be involved in and we have been involved in over the years, I'm sure, and there's hopefully much more to come. You know, I don't know what 2021 really holds for us as a church you know I have my ideas I'm sure you have your ideas as well but I'm sure God's ideas are even better than all of ours put together but a few things that we can pick up three things that we learn initially right here at the beginning of first Thessalonians are these three and that would be may Calvary become an increasingly healthy church what does that mean that means that we continually grow in a faith that's at work in love that labors and in hope that endures. That's one. That's one thing. So, we can pray the gospel continues to make us an increasingly spiritually healthy church by these three things, these three graces. And then, second, that Calvary would become an increasingly influential church. Historically, Calvary has been an influential church, but there's more influence. There's more to be done, and that we would proclaim the gospel everywhere. And third, the Calvary would become a model church because we follow the model of the Thessalonians. So, if you want to become a model church, we just sort of do what the Thessalonians do, it would seem, and we will become that. So, let me pray for these things for us right now, and we'll finish our worship this morning. Well, Lord God, we just stand amazed as we read the beginning of this letter that the apostle wrote to the church in Thessalonica? Your gospel is amazingly powerful that you could transform so many people in such a short period of time by their simple faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Astounding. And that you would fill them with such joy in the midst of such persecution. Oh, we wish that you would give that to us as well. So we pray this morning that you would continually produce even more faith in us, more love, and more hope. And that you would continually make us an influential church in ways that we may not even perceive or have thought about yet, that your gospel would go everywhere, because that's really why we want to be influential. We want to influence people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, would you make us become a model church after the pattern that the Thessalonians are put before us this morning, and that we would do this as well? All for, of course, your glory, Lord Jesus, in your church. We pray these things. Amen.